All right, what's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and today I'm talking to Mike Parham, the creator of a very popular tool called Sidekick. Sidekick essentially allows programmers to write code that runs in the background so that it doesn't get in the way of other parts of the code that need to stay fast and snappy. Mike came on Andy Hackers and did a text interview back in November, and I've done about 150 interviews total, and his is somewhere in the top five in terms of popularity. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Sidekick is an open source project, and also the fact that Mike is basically running the business alone, and yet it brings in close to $80,000 a month in revenue. Uh, so Mike, I'm super excited to have you on. How's it going? It's going great, Cortland. Thanks for having me, and congratulations on your move to Stripe. Yeah, thank you. So I'd like to start the story at the very beginning, because I want to give people an idea of what kind of person goes on to run a million dollar a year company by himself. What were you doing before you started Sidekick? Well, I've been a uh, a software developer for close on 20 years now, doing everything from enterprise software to consumer-facing uh, web properties. Just worked for maybe a dozen different startups. And the common theme in all of these companies was I was always working for somebody else and sort of solving their problem and earning a salary while doing it. And after this latest startup, I wanted to both work more on open source, solve the fact that I wasn't making any money off of my open source, and also try to solve a problem that was more interesting to me um, so that I felt more fulfilled in, in solving sort of a problem that I had rather than somebody else having. So that's what just stated Sidekick. And how did you get into open source development in the first place? Well, that was just a matter of scratching your own itch. Um, we all are using various software libraries, various packages to solve various business problems we have. And it's sort of natural to fall into using open source. Um, but obviously, open source usually has bugs or edge cases that aren't handled properly with how you need it to work. And so therefore, you you go and you change something and you you push it back upstream to the uh, the maintainer to sort of improve the status quo. And so I had sort of naturally been maintaining more and more Ruby libraries as I broadened my Ruby knowledge and was working on various Rails apps. And, um, and part of that was working on background job processing libraries like Rescue, like Delayed Job, and um, starting to build my own because I wanted to build something better. Yeah, and at that point in time, you know, when you first started working on Sidekick Kids, you already been spending a lot of time reading about internet businesses or thinking about internet businesses because I know a lot of people spend years uh, just reading about people doing this stuff before they take the plunge. Were you kind of like preparing in advance or did you just jump right in? I really had no experience whatsoever. I had always told myself that I was the last person that wanted to start a business, that I was just scared of it, didn't want to hire anybody, didn't want to deal with accounting, didn't want to deal with taxes. I just didn't want to deal with the administrivia that comes with owning a business. So what I did was when I started Sidekick and I said, I want to start charging money for this is I just did business as myself. Uh, so all the sales and income that I had just went on my personal income tax. And I didn't even have any sort of LLC or company um, as a separate entity to take in the sales. Once I hit a point where my sales were larger than my my monthly salary from my full-time job, that's when I realized I needed to, you know, make a change and I needed to actually do the hard work to to learn how to to run a business, how to start a business and and how to make it legit. And it turned out to be a lot easier than I was expecting, I think, which is true of a lot of things when you're when you're really scared of something, it, it's very oftentimes a lot a lot easier than you thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people, I mean, you said you didn't really start worrying about that stuff until it was substantial enough of a business that you could quit your full-time job. But a lot of people don't get started even collecting the very first dollar because they haven't figured out the legal situation and they haven't figured out the accounting and they're, and they're afraid of that kind of stuff. And you really like, you don't actually have to do <laughs> all that much to legally start a business, at least in America and to start collecting money. But like eventually you should, you know, get your, get your stuff together. Did you have any sources of inspiration? Like did, 
any other open source projects inspire you to create a business or other people creating businesses inspire you? How did you even know it was possible for you to just create something and start charging money for it online? I consider myself an accidental entrepreneur um, because I, I really had no idea what I was doing. I I just wanted to solve the problem of working hundreds and thousands of hours for no money at all. And so I said, I'm sick and tired of this. I'm just going to charge people money. And the money's going to land in my bank account and I'll be happy. And I don't care beyond that. You know, you can talk about legal issues. You can talk about accounting issues. You can talk about tax issues. But no one cares about any of that if you're not making any money. So until you're making thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars, it doesn't matter what you do because the 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 amounts are so small that nobody cares. So I just started charging money. And, you know, once I decided to go into business, then I contacted a lawyer and he he incorporated me and I talked to an accountant and he showed me sort of how to keep books um, so that everything is legit. But don't worry about the paperwork. The, the hard part is just getting money in, in the door in the first place. So that's that's what you should be focusing on. Um, and so, no, I there's, there's very, very few people that are doing open source and getting money at the same time. So I really didn't have anybody to look up to uh, when I was starting out. I, I don't remember really any, any companies that I was looking at as inspiration. Um, there might have been one, uh, which was Fusion. Uh, they make a library in Ruby called Passenger, which is a web server or an application server. And they started doing um, their Passenger Enterprise like a month or two before I started. And when I saw them do it, I said, well, if they can do it, why can't I do it? And so uh, I kind of quickly followed in their footsteps by creating my own sort of uh, business-oriented software. Yeah, it's funny. A lot of people kind of put the cart before the horse and, you know, they're so worried about the legal issues that they don't even think about the fact that it doesn't matter if your business doesn't make any money. And another example I see of this all the time is that people get into startups and entrepreneurship and they kind of assume that, you know, the hard part is coming up with the idea and that that matters the most and they totally underestimate how difficult it is to actually find their first users. Uh, So I totally agree with you that, you know, if you're an entrepreneur out there and you're listening, don't worry about like the trivial stuff. Worry about the actual hard stuff, which is going to be building an actually successful business and generating revenue. The other stuff will fall into place. It's pretty easy to find an accountant or a lawyer. Don't even worry about a logo, really. I mean, some of the most successful people that I've interviewed never came up with a logo uh, and they're doing like fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a month in revenue. So worry about the actual business first and then get into it. So what's the story behind how you even came up with the idea for Sidekick? Were you, you said you were working on background job open source libraries beforehand? Yeah, I was a, a consultant working in San Francisco for a company that was using a, a large amount of background processing. And they had maybe a dozen machines chewing through all these background jobs. And when I realized the set of software that they were using and how, how little efficiency they were getting out of their solution... Uh, and that not only that, but their their stack was pretty much best practice for Ruby back then. Um, I said I can build something that's much more efficient, that can process all these jobs with one machine rather than a dozen machines, uh, and thus save a lot of operating expense and thus be really valuable to companies. Um, once I realized that value, I said, you know, there's no reason why I shouldn't be charging for this thing, or there should be an opportunity for. Uh, an enterprise version of this thing. So I spent about two months building Sidekick and launched it after about two months of, of working on it internally myself. And uh, it got pretty good take up almost immediately. Um, you know, I guess I was the right, t- right, right time, right place. But in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, okay, I've got this open source project. It's, it's getting successful how am I going to sustain this for the next five or 10 years? Uh, Because any successful open source project is going to last at least five to 10 years with all the businesses that are using uh, your software and and relying on it. So how was I going to sustain, how was I going to run that marathon the entire time? And and that's when I said, I'm going to charge money for this. And if I'm making money off of it, then I will be incented to stay, to stay with it. And so after about six months of working on the open source version, I released 
a layer on top of it, which was closed source, which I charged money for. And that was Sidekick Pro. And that is a feature pack, essentially, uh, an add-on that adds a bunch of features that the open source version does not have. And I saw sales almost immediately. Um, you know, my open, the open source version um, gives me a natural sort of market because those, those users of my open source version will naturally convert as they find that they need those paid features. So the, the, the business just kind of worked itself out really easily, easily from there. I've got a, a natural set of users to market to, and, um, and I just make their life as easy as possible, and they, they upgrade and, and pay me money for, uh, for the work. And it's funny that you that you immediately saw the value that you're providing in terms of, hey, I can save this company money because they're going to pay for you know X servers, whereas when they use me, you know, inside Sidekick, they're only going to use one server or you know or fewer servers. I think for a lot of developers, especially, it's difficult to think in business terms like that, right? It's easier to think, okay, I'm a developer, and the amount of time I spend coding is worth you know this much salary per year, and it doesn't matter how much money I save the company. You know, developers are only worth X, or code is only worth you know this amount. Why do you think it was that it was so easy for you to to determine like the business value of Sidekick, or did it take you a while to determine that? Well, I I had been working in software for ten or fifteen years at the time, so I had seen a lot of different companies and how efficient or inefficient they ran. Not only that, but I'd been doing open source for for five years or so before that. And I had seen what happened with projects where they were of a certain complexity. And so the maintainers just are hit with support requests all the time and they burn out very quickly. So I saw not only the business value, a little bit of business value there, but I also saw the alternative, which was, you know, burnout, inevitable burnout after a year or two. And I said, there, there needs to be a happy medium here. You know, I, I charging a, for a little bit of that business value that they're getting to prevent burnout seems like, uh, you know, that dovetails nicely. Those two things solve each other. But as to how I picked up on it, I think that was just experience and, um, and wanting to solve that problem of burnout. What point did you think, hey, I have a real business on my hands? Because it took you, I think, a year and a half to get to the point where you're ready to quit your full-time job. That entire time, were you, were you working up to be able to quit? Not, not explicitly, no. I, I wasn't, for the first six months to a year that I was selling uh, Sidekick Pro, I just said, you know, I'm, I'm doing this as a nice side gig. This will provide, I'll be happy if it provides me 20 grand a year so that I can afford a nice vacation with my family every year. Uh, but I didn't really have any, any goals beyond that. Well, no, that's not quite true. When I first started, I said, listen, I'm going to sell this thing. And I want to make a million dollars off of it. You know, I'd been working for a bunch of different startups trying to punch that lottery ticket that would make me a lot of money. And and I'd always always failed um, for a thousand different reasons. Uh, so I said, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna build this big successful open source project, I want to I want to make good money off of it. I never thought that it would just be a full time job. I figured it would just be a side gig that makes me good good money, uh, and and over time it'll just add up to be this nice big number. But at some point, it gathered up enough inertia, even beyond what I was expecting, to where you know suddenly I was making more money than my full-time salary. So why am I working for somebody else for a full-time salary when I can be furthering my own thing and potentially growing this well beyond a full-time salary? And so that's kind of the trail I've been on for the last two years. Was that an easy decision once you passed your full-time salary to, to just quit? Well... What happened was that the company I was working at was sort of naturally tailing off. Uh, they weren't seeing much growth. And so I knew that I saw the writing on the wall that I'd probably be needing to be looking for a new job uh, sometime in the next six months to a year. And I, and I said to myself, why I've got this great thing that's making me plenty of money. Why don't I just do that full time working for myself rather than getting back on the startup treadmill and so that's that's sort of the the course I, I picked is I, I, I did a couple of tweaks to the business model to make it more sustainable for myself. Um, specifically, I switched to a subscription model in terms of payment. So instead of a one-time fee, 
I, I started charging annually for the software. And by switching to a, a reoccurring subscription, uh, I had that more predictable income that then I could sort of guarantee how the business was going to go over the next couple of years. That went really well. And, and about mm, four months after I made that switch, um, there, there came a time where it was just natural for me to quit my job and, uh, and move to full-time. That's when I incorporated. That's when I did the legal and accounting stuff and, and made everything uh, legit. How much time were you putting into Psychic before you quit your job? Because I know one of the most challenging things for people to do is to basically start a business while also working a job. And especially if you have a family or, you know, other hobbies, it's just hard to find the time on nights and weekends. So how much time were you spending on Sidekick? Yeah, well, that was that was one of the nice things with, with my project and my full-time job is that we were the number one user of Sidekick and Sidekick Pro. So we were using all of the features that I was building. They were my first commercial customer in that I gave them a free license to use the software in return for all of the alpha and beta testing, because I was, I was essentially um, the director of, of technical operations at the company. So I was the one who was in charge of production. I was the one who got paged if there was downtime, that sort of thing. So building sidekick and sort of designing the entire business uh, around those background job workflows that were, that scaled really well with Sidekick. I was able to, to sort of alpha and beta test all those features before rolling it out into my uh, commercial releases. The job was good as I was growing the the commercial offering. Uh, you know, in that in that sense, I was very lucky. Um, but I was probably spending I don't know maybe maybe twenty hours a week on Sidekick. It's hard to say because a lot of times my Friday nights, um, even my my evenings would be two or three hours working on various features and various bugs in Sidekick. Uh, at the time, I had a very small child, so my wife and I were just naturally at home almost every single night doing the whole childcare thing. And so instead of watching TV, I would just be on my laptop building features, fixing bugs, that sort of thing. And, and that was every day for probably at least a year. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who's had that situation where effectively the company that you're building on the side, you can really spend time working on it at work or at the very least, you know, your job is using it. And so by going to work every day, you're effectively testing your own software. Did you have to do anything special to come up with that arrangement or was it? Well, as I said, they, they were using sidekick was the library that we were using to sort of scale the business. Everything went through the background jobs so that we could scale it across many machines you know, effectively, I because I was solving the business problem, you know, it was legit for me to be working on my thing there. But a lot of the commercial stuff I did after hours, I did on the weekends, and then I would just sort of roll that feature into the application during working hours, right? So um, there was sort of a, I don't know what you what you'd call that a two two sides to it, right? I I'd build the feature during my off hours. And then during the business hours, I'd be integrating into the app and testing it and that sort of thing. I mean, you're really just dog fooding your own application, which is awesome because, you know, that's something that I think everybody really should do. You should test out what you're building and see what it's like from a user's point of view. And that takes time, you know, and the fact that you were able to offload that time into your actual working hours means that like, you know, the 20 hours that you spent on Sidekick at home, uh, was really augmented by like you know hours and hours using it you know from the same way that your users do uh, while you're on the job getting paid. So that's like it's a pretty unique situation, and I think it's so advantageous that you had that. That's awesome. Well, yeah, for sure. I I mean I was very lucky in in having this setup. I think if you're building a SaaS, oftentimes people building SaaSes have those one or two or three initial customers that sort of trust them and recognize that they are part of that getting that SAS off the ground and they know there may be some rocky periods, but um, they're getting business value out of this new SAS. But at the same time, they're maybe they're getting a really uh, low price or maybe it's free for the initial year or two that they use it while the SAS is really becoming productized and, and being made reliable. Another thing that I think is really remarkable about uh, Sidekick as a business and that I think illustrates 
a lesson that people could benefit from understanding is that if you look at it, Sidekick is a background job processor for Ruby. And Ruby is at least it's one of at least, you know, six or seven popular languages for web development. And even within Ruby, there's at least three or four other popular background job frameworks. So it's a product with a lot of competition. And it wasn't even the first one on the scene by a long shot. Yet it's still been able to succeed and grow. And I think that's not an intuitive thing to a lot of people who want to start a business. People think that in order to create a successful business, they need to think of some new product that's never been thought of before and solve a problem that nobody's ever solved. What are your thoughts on that? And were you worried about competition when you were first creating Sidekick? That's a great question. I think open source is a very interesting area in terms of business. I think people really overestimate how good open source is. A lot of open source is just not that great. It's cobbled together over time to something that works. And that's that's a lot of times as far as it's taken is you just you have something that works and it's good enough. And so when you come along and you say I'm going to build something that's better, not only that, but I'm going to work full-time on it for years and polish this thing so that it is not just good enough, but good. All of a sudden, you stand head and shoulders above the competition. I'm not really terribly afraid of open source as competition because I know that I can spend full-time on competing against it, whereas open source inevitably people who are working on open source are just looking to get what they can get working. And then that's it because they're not getting paid anything. And so therefore, after a little while, you just burn out and you don't, you don't want to put any more time into it. I think there's, there's a lot of solutions for Ruby. Um, and there's a lot of solutions for a lot of different languages. Um, but I'm proof that if you just pick a little niche and you provide enough value that even in my little tiny niche, in the world, I can still I can still make millions of dollars. Almost every niche, there's plenty of money for for one person if you can make a difference as one person. And of course, this goes into the whole aspect of do you get investors? Do you bootstrap it yourself? That sort of thing. Luckily, I was I didn't have to have any investors. I was able to bootstrap it myself, and so I can keep my prices low, uh, and that has the advantage of of making it relatively easy for you to, to convert users into customers because you're not having to convince them that they've got to spend five or six figures on these big enterprise packages. Um, you know, it's, it's something that's reasonably priced uh, for a, a startup to use. Yeah, and I think that's a, an, another good topic to get into because you mentioned having a pro version of Sidekick and a free version of Sidekick. Can you go into detail and describe to us how exactly your business model works? Like what do people pay for and how did you settle on that being your business model? Sure. I have three tiers of, of packages. Uh, Sidekick is the base one. That's open source. It's free for everybody to use. And then on top of that base, I have a pro library and an enterprise library. Uh, And those are just additional tiers of features that just cost more money. So, uh, oh, you know, Sidekick is free. Pro is $1,000 a year and Enterprise is $2,000 a year. Pricing is very simple. I'm trying to keep the model very simple so that it doesn't get terribly complex and easy for people to understand. But uh, as I was developing Sidekick and then developing additional features for for my company, that I, the co- previous company I was working at, uh, I said, you know, what are the features that you know, a hundred percent of my users are going to need, well, that stuff should go into sidekick. And then for features that aren't necessarily used by every single person, but are still very useful, then those are the ones that would bump up into the commercial libraries, the commercial tiers. Uh, And that's proven to be a a great model. There's, there's a a dozen different features that are in the, the commercial tiers that sort of people naturally upgrade to as they realize that they don't want to maintain and have to integrate and test all these various different open source packages that, that you can integrate into Sidekick. Because that, that's, the, that's the interesting thing about my, my offering is that you can 
replicate something similar to my offering by integrating a dozen different open source packages. But the problem is, of course, that you have to do all that work yourself. You have to test it. You have to validate all these different packages written by all these different people all work well together. And the alternative is to buy it from one guy, me, who has done all that um, already. And so that value proposition tends to be very easy for people to understand once they realize uh, the work that they're going to need to do as an alternative. So, so yeah, I've, I've gone from having zero customers to having, I think I'm about 800 customers now, something like that. I was going to say, there's two things that you said that really struck me. One is that you've got, basically your prices are like a thousand dollars a year, somewhere in that range. And which I think a lot of developers would consider expensive for anything that they make. And that, that combines with this other thing that struck me, which is that doing the math, it's a no-brainer. Why not pay for Psychic? Why would you spend all the time putting all these things together? And I think a problem that a lot of developers kind of uniquely face is that we tend to undervalue our work, right? We tend to, to make something and say, okay, well, you know, I made this using code. Any other developer can make this, you know, they just write their own code. Why are they going to pay for what I I made, you know, and then they charge way less than a thousand dollars a year. You know, they charge five dollars a month for something that could easily save somebody thousands and thousands of dollars. And I've been meaning to write something up about this because I think there's a lot of problems that, you know, challenges or distractions that developers tend to run into that non-developer founders actually don't run into. So uh, undercharging and devaluing, you know, the products that we write and the code that we write, and also the opposite problem, which is valuing the coding process too much, right, and neglecting the strike the right balance with other stuff, like distributing and selling their software. So I'm curious if you've had any trouble with any of this. Have you ever underpriced Sidekick or have you ever spent you know too much time coding and not enough time actually trying to sell? Pricing is difficult for sure. Uh, you, you bring up a number of good points. One of, the, one of the drawbacks to my business is I sort of have a bottom-up business model. That is, I'm targeting developers directly. Um, companies like Oracle... And, um, well, shoot, I don't know any others who are enterprise, uh, Microsoft, they're targeting the CIOs, the CTOs, the folks that have million dollar budgets and are looking for a million dollar solution. So when you're talking to about an individual developer sitting in a seat who just needs to solve a problem, they don't have any budget. And so when you propose a six figure budget to them, they're going to laugh you out of the room, especially given that these people are used to working with open source where they have their, their average price is zero. So you are correct in that I have had a bit of an uphill uh, struggle just in convincing Ruby people to buy software at all because they are so used to just going to GitHub and, or installing a gym or something like that. So Keeping my price relatively low uh, and my operations pretty efficient has um, been crucial for my success. Um, if I had to get VC, there's no way I'd be able to make this business work. You know, the, the profit margins I need to have to justify VC, to justify sort of any sort of seed round, A round, that sort of thing, I'd have to, I'd have to increase my price tenfold. Uh, and that, and I don't know that 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 kind of pricing would fly um, in the in the Ruby market. So, to some extent, I've had to tune my business over the last couple of years to work with who I'm targeting. That's what's hard about pricing is you have to figure out who you're marketing to, who's the one that's going to be be making the decision, what's kind of going to be their budget, and and you'll never get it right. I mean, I've got. I've got the two-person startup in a closet that have no money as a customer, and I've also got the Fortune 10 as my customer. And so I charge the two people in a closet a thousand bucks, and then I charge the Fortune 5 company a thousand bucks. And <laughs> that's that's the drawbacks to pricing is is there's no good there's no good price for for everybody, right? So, you know, you, you, you make the best of what you can do. And, and I think I've got something that works, but uh, it certainly is not going to pay for a dozen different employees, um, you know, in, the, in a company kind of of that size. Yeah, I think 
you know, to your point, if you were to go the VC route and you're expected to create some sort of, you know, $200 million company, then you for sure would have to change everything about how you operate. You'd have to raise your prices. You probably have to hire uh, dedicated salespeople to call up the higher ups in these companies and sell them on what it is that you're building and have an entire sales process dedicated to that. But I'm curious what your sales process looks like now. Is it almost entirely inbound developers finding Sidekick on their own? And how did you make your first couple actual sales once you first released the pro version? <laughs> so yeah, here. So here's my secret. Here's here's Mike's secret to enterprise sales. Don't do it. I don't do any sales. Uh, I work on the product. I try to document the product as best I can. I try to make the features as useful as possible. And I try to make the product just stand on its own. So 90% of my sales come without me saying a word to the person who's buying it. Uh, And so a lot of that, I wonder myself, and I have no idea, but I wonder myself about how many of my sales just come from people who've used it at previous jobs, who've used Sidekick Pro and Sidekick Enterprise at previous jobs, and just see it as one of the tools in their tool belt now. And so they go into a new company and they say, we got to have this thing. It's great. And they just buy it. But that really is 90% of my sales. I do get you know, inbound emails every day saying, hey, we got questions about this, that, or the other. And obviously, I, I, I answer as best as I can. But I don't do any outbound sales. I don't do any calls. I don't do any webinars. I don't even do really any uh, advertising of any sort. My market that I'm focused on is solely sidekick users and convincing them that I'm a legit business and that I sell legit software for a, a valuable price or a reasonable price and, and to get them to upgrade. So part of that has been to optimize my business as much as possible. So when people come on board, when they buy, it's completely automated to, to sign them up and give them access. Uh, when they don't pay and they churn out, that's also completely automated. So I really don't spend much of any time on the actual admin part of my company. It's really just focused on support emails, uh, dealing with issues and, and building new features and that sort of thing. Yeah, you're living like every developer founder's wet dream, which is, I don't want to worry about sales and marketing at all. I just want to put my head down and build my product and have people come use it. And it's funny because for a lot of businesses, it's, that's terrible advice. Uh, they'll never get even their very first customer if they do it. And it works really well for you. And I think it's fun to think about what it is that makes that work well for Sidekick. A huge part of it has to be the fact that you just have a product that is better than a lot of your competitors. And that's very niche. So it, it targets people who don't have that many alternative solutions. And then I would guess another part of it is, and you could, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. I would guess another part of it is the fact that you're, and a place where there's already demand for that thing. And before Sidekick existed, people knew that they needed a background job processor. And so they're going to search for that thing versus a lot of people who are building like these totally new things that no one's ever heard of and have never searched for have no demand. And so they have to kind of drum up this demand and educate people as to what it is they're building. Yeah, it really is a better mousetrap. Um, so that 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 you're right. I mean, that is an aspect of my success is that I don't have to educate people about why they want this thing. They they are already using a background library, library or they are already using Sidekick for free. And so upgrading is, is just convincing them to part with a little bit of money in return for these features, which are also well known and they know they need those features. Uh, another aspect was when I first started, uh, I had probably maybe 20, 20 uh, really heavy users of Sidekick who who loved it and who worked with me on the open source stuff. And so when I said, I'm going to start selling this pro version, probably five to 10 almost immediately purchased it. And so I had a sort of that natural first round of customer interest just built in just because I put six months of work into the open source version and people saw how well it was going. They saw how well it was taking off in the market and they, they saw my development process and the quality therein, you know, the test coverage and, and that I was, you know, sort of dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's and, and therefore that, um, 
putting a little money uh, in that I was somebody that was uh, worthwhile and trustworthy to uh, to invest in effectively. Because that's really what your early customers are doing is they're investing in in the growth of this of this new product and that it will continue to be useful for them for the next few years. Yeah, that's such a great way to get your first customers. I mean, like you said, they already trust you and they already have been working with you. And I think, it, again, that's like something that's hard for a lot of people to start doing just because it's difficult for them to take the time to spend six months building a product. And, you know, I think your story in a lot of ways is a story of... of taking these like unfair advantages and using them to your advantage. And, and I don't say that, you know, in any way to take away from like what you put into it. I say that more with a, a thought towards everybody should identify what their unique advantages are and try to leverage those things. Uh, if you have got a big following on Twitter, you should leverage that, right? If you have an ability to build a product that your company can use, you should do that. You know, if you've got friends in a particular industry and they could be your potential first users, you should talk to them. So I think a lot of people can learn from from how you started Sidekick and, and you know, hope, hopefully those lessons will help them get over the difficult initial humps to getting a business off the ground. I think another thing that's really cool about Sidekick, and I mentioned this early on, is that you're pretty much a single founder if you accept, like, you know, the people who've helped out on the open source side of things. And it's very uncommon to see one person doing so much in revenue. Uh, generally, beyond a certain point, you see founders bringing in some help, bringing in salespeople, marketers, additional developers, etc. What has enabled you to stay solo where other companies your size have had to hire? Part of this whole, I don't want to start a business and then deciding eventually to start a business was me saying, I'm not going to take anything as gospel. I'm not going to necessarily follow the well-trodden path that many other people do. And instead, ask, why am I doing this? Or should I do something else? Uh, and so one of, the, one of the first decisions I made was I'd worked, like I said, previously in about a dozen different startups, and I'd seen it fail so many different ways. And, and I said, you know what, if I'm going to have a business, I don't want to have other employees that are going to depend on me. I'm going to, either this thing's going to work with just me, or it's not going to work. And I'm going to be the only person who's going to fail because of it. And so I just said, I don't want to hire anybody. And um, a lot of my business decisions have come out of that. Uh, so I also made the decision, I don't want to run a SaaS. So I do have a, a server running 24-7 that I do have to monitor, but it's extremely simple. It's as simple as I could humanly make it. And so uh, I don't have a large operation that requires other technical people to to build it to improve it to monitor it i don't have my my customer side my administration side is simple enough where i don't need uh, accounting people i don't need legal people i don't need bookkeepers or anything like that i do all that myself so i've purposefully said hey i i will i don't want to hire anyone where possible i'm going to automate stuff where where also possible, I'm just going to make things as simple as, as humanly possible so that I can scale. And so far, I've got something, like I said, 800 customers, and I'm scaling just fine with that number because I focus on just on the product and maintaining the software. And so I'm not running a, a SaaS that uh, has this sort of complex operations overhead. Yeah, it strikes me that they're there are always a few constants that exist for pretty much any business that can take up your founder's time or your time as a founder. So, you know, there's development to improve the product itself and operations to keep things running, which it sounds like you've, like, you know, max gone hard on development and minimized operational costs. But then there's other things like growth related stuff like sales and marketing and distribution, uh, search engine optimization. There's always customer support, uh, taxes, accounting, that kind of stuff. And at first, I think early on for any business, it's, pretty manageable to wear all of these hats as a founder but over time you start to build up at least I do in my past endeavors I started to build up like a to-do list and each one of these categories that's absolutely humongous and at any given time I feel like okay well I've got all this stuff I could do on the SEO side of things and all these features that I could add and all these things that I could do to streamline customer support etc 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 and you just can't get to it because you're, you're one guy what have been the hardest parts of scaling a business as a solo founder? And have there been any things that you really wanted to get to, but you just couldn't? 
Well, I've I've always thought about how can I bring Sidekick to other other languages. Um, so I I wrote a version for the Crystal programming language, which is so, sort of similar to Ruby. Uh, and then I, I also broadened out into another product category. I came out with a product called Inspector that that just did not work as well as Sidekick didn't sell as well. So I've I've sort of um, dropped that and, and don't really do much with that anymore. So my 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 success is is uh, is not a hundred percent. The secret to my success is just time. I didn't quit my job and just say I got to make this thing work in the next six months. Like I said, I I was working full time for the first eighteen months while this thing was growing, and so it wasn't until I was making good money where I went on my own and relied on that income. And then since then, I've been working for two, three years now on my own. It's just a constant grind. Every day you're executing, you're you're working on your documentation, you're polishing your landing pages for for customers. But because I'm not having to convince random people about the value of my commercial stuff. I, I'm solely focused on my sidekick open source users. I don't really need to do a lot of search engine optimization. I don't need to do a lot of the stuff that you might need to do if you have more, a more sort of generic consumer SaaS. Um, and so that that's that's another, as you said, another natural advantage that uh, that my business has. You mentioned Inspector, and I, I want to come, I want to kind of bookmark that and come back and talk about that for a second because I think it'd be very interesting to explore the differences between Inspector and Sidekick and talk about one why one is so successful uh, compared to the other. But you know, also back on this topic of you know scaling your efforts as a single founder, I mean, I think like another advantage that you have with with Sidekick is that retention is pretty great for the business that you're running. I mean, people probably don't switch around their background job processor willy-nilly every other month, uh, which means your churn is low. So when you bring in a new customer, I'd imagine you're not just replacing old ones, you're just adding new customers. and allows your revenue to kind of snowball and also gives you a break where you don't have to focus that much on growth. Whereas, you know, by comparison, me selling ads with indie hackers, well, people don't buy ads for like 10 years, you know. They buy ads for a few weeks or a few months and then they stop and I have to find someone else to fill that ad slot, you know, and there's a ton of businesses out there like that. For sure. Um, a lot of the low churn and the, and the uh, recurring revenue means that I can just depend on organic growth over time. I, my business is growing yeah, generally anywhere from a 50 to 100% a year, uh, which is pretty darn good. But it's not the... 100% a month that VC wants to see. But it's great for one person. Are you kidding me? I, I, I'm i doing really well for one person. So uh, I'm very happy with my nice, easy growth that I'm seeing over time right now. Another big aspect is, like I said, the automating of all the payments infrastructure and um, customer management. Uh, Stripe is invaluable for that. I, I push as much as I possibly can into Stripe so that I don't have to do accounts receivable and badger people to pay their bills. It's only the largest of my customers that I allow to pay via invoice. Everybody else I force to pay through Stripe so that so that everything is done um, in an automated fashion, so that the credit card is just is charged every year and the money just shows up in my bank account. I don't have to do anything. There's no way I'd be able to scale to 800 customers if I didn't have the majority of my of my uh, payment infrastructure all automated through Stripe. Yeah, and another thing that strikes me is you is you talk about having eight hundred customers is for a lot of people who just charge five bucks a month, eight hundred customers is what like four thousand dollars a month, right? You've got eight hundred customers and you're you're doing I think over a million in revenue per year, uh, which means you have a pretty high price point. You know, a lot fewer customers paying you more money, which also means that you don't need that many wins in the sales department to build up your revenue. And you also don't need to spend nearly as much time on customer support, which, speaking from experience, can be a humongous time sink for a, a solo founder. And by the way, for anybody listening, if you want to avoid a customer support nightmare, don't sell to cheap customers. Because <laughs> for one, the cheaper it is, the more of them you get. And number two, cheap customers are super price sensitive. Like they're the ones who worry that their investment in whatever it is that you're building won't be worth it. And that worry translates into all sorts of inane support requests and emails that, quite frankly, are going to take up your time. How do you handle customer support with Sidekick? One of the, one of the best things I did with pricing was making a decision that I would never, ever give a discount 
to anybody. And that has proven to be such a great decision. Um, the people that ask for discounts are inevitably the, the, going to be your worst customers. I find that the people that are paying me the most money are the ones that treat me the nicest. On the other hand, by a corollary, <laughs> uh, the ones who pay you the least are the ones who treat you the worst. And so those are the ones you don't want as customers. So I always said, everybody pays the same price. I will not give any discounts ever. And so I have maybe one or two a month, people write in and say, oh, I've got a startup. We don't have any money yet. Uh, could we pay you when we get our first round? Or can we you know, just pay per month? Uh, and always, 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 I always say, no, <laughs> I'm not going to allow it. You know, you can, Sidekick is free. You can use that all you want. But if you want my commercial stuff, you have to pay uh, the same as everybody else. Support is uh, is a tricky thing because like you said, as the customers scale, the support uh, burden increases. What I've tried to do, and this is another natural advantage that I have as part of my business, is that my users are used to open source and they're used to not having any support at all. So they are used to reading through issues. They're used to reading through wikis and man pages. So what I try to do is document my features as best as I can with all the caveats and everything like that. And I also have four years of issues built up in GitHub so that when people do have problems, they will inevitably Google. They'll inevitably go into my wiki and, and read the docs so that I don't actually have to deal with a lot of emails all the time. I, I still do get a half a dozen support emails a day, probably, but it's not, it's the, it's, since I'm working on it full time, it's not an issue for me to keep up with it so far. We'll see how that goes long term. But I also have a commercial support policy, uh, which is, is pretty conservative, where I tell people technically you're only supposed to contact me once a quarter or something like that. And so that, that gives me an out where if somebody's contacting me a lot, I can point to that and say, you know, I'm sorry, but, uh, I need to keep a sane support policy so that it, that scales with me. But that's sort of the way I run support. Yeah, that's uh, the first half of your answer where you were talking about the cheapest customers being the worst ones. Again, I want to talk about selling ads on indie hackers. And I don't want to disparage any of the, the people who bought ads on indie hackers. They're all great customers. But at the end of the day, there were, there were companies that could afford to buy ads for like two or three months at a time. And it was nothing to them. It was just a drop in the bucket. And you might think, oh, those are the people that you're going to have to do high-touch sales with. And it's going to take forever. And they're going to be taking all of your time. Those were the customers who were the easiest to deal with. I would you know, call them. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll take two months. And then I wouldn't hear from them again. Versus you know, people who were running very small startups and didn't have an advertising budget. And 100% of their marketing budget was spent on like one newsletter ad for ND Hackers were by far the most fretful about whether or not it was going to work and they would send me the most emails and change things at the last second. Uh, so I think it's kind of just a universal constant that the lower price customers are going to be a much more of a headache and it actually affects your ability to run your business if you're spending more time dealing with those kind of emails. Absolutely. I mean, you've, you've got you've to keep the business sane. Yeah, for sure. You know, especially if you're a single developer. I mean, it's not... Running a business is, is a psychological thing, right? If you don't enjoy doing it, what's the point? I mean, you could just go get a job for somebody else and, and there's no point in starting a business that's going to have a whole bunch of aspects that you hate. So make sure to uh, to keep an eye on your customer support requests and other aspects of your business that that matter because ultimately I think most businesses fail because their founders quit. They quit before they get the business to work or maybe they quit after they get the business to work. And if you are not doing what you like, it's just going to make it that much harder to justify continuing when the going gets tough. Couldn't have said it better myself. And to, to end on, I wanted to say uh, that, you know, you've been kind enough to share your story on Indie Hackers and other places. And I assume you get a lot of people writing to you, asking for advice and stuff like that. Do you ever mentor other people? or uh, And if so, you know, I'd love to know what kind of challenges are people facing? What kind of questions do you get asked? You know, the, most of the people that, that ping me asking for help are in my same sort of area. They're open source developers who are frustrated with having to work uh, for hundreds of hours building a project and then find that 
their projects are being used by the largest companies in the world for zero dollars. And my my advice generally is always the same. And I think you've you've picked up on it very well in this interview, which is try and figure out what are your your natural advantages. Um, what are the points or the the breakpoints where you can say, I'm going to give this away for free, but I'm going to charge money for this additional value. At the end of the day, Sidekick itself, the free version is still extremely valuable, but I give it away. And, and I give it away because I need that market uh, to upsell to. So I get something of value out of Sidekick as well as the users that are using Sidekick. But uh, for, for open source developers, you know, every project's going to be different. What works for me is not necessarily going to work for every library and every framework out there. And so people really have to determine how, how can I find a way of, of making this work long-term, of sustaining this project. And whether that's money or whether that's building expertise such that you can run a nice consulting business uh, based on your knowledge from the projects, whether you're charging for uh, you know, support, support contracts, uh, there's, there's a half a dozen, dozen different ways uh, to make money off of open source. But you have to use your best judgment and experience to determine what's, what's right for, for each, each project. So that's really, that's really where I go with that. Um, and, and I think you, you also said it well, which is, is if you're not happy doing something, don't do it. You know, I, I, my business looks very different from so many other businesses because I said, I don't want to do something that doesn't make me happy. You know, I don't want to run a company with a dozen employees. So I just chose not to hire anybody. And, and that made me, that, that was a forcing function to design my business a little bit differently so that it scales with just me. And I think that is a great place to end the interview. Uh, we're kind of out of time. I wanted to get into the, the you know the details of Inspector. We're not going to have time, but maybe I'll have to have you come back on the show another time uh, and talk about that business and the differences between that and Sidekick because uh, I think it'd be really interesting for people to hear and I think we'd probably learn a lot too. But uh, thanks a ton for coming on, Mike. I really enjoyed talking to you. Can you let us know where we can go online to learn more about yourself and about Sidekick? Sure. Uh, the best way to sort of pay attention to me is my Twitter account, which is mparam, my first initial last name. And I also have a blog at mikeparam.com that uh, I publish occasional interesting tidbits on technical and open source business stuff. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, you should join me and a whole bunch of other indie hackers and entrepreneurs on the ndhackers.com forum where we talk about things like how to come up with a good idea and how to find your first paying customers. Also, if you're working on a business or a product of your own, it's a great place to come and get feedback from the community on what you're working on. Again, that's www.ndhackers.com forum. Thanks, and I'll see you guys next time.